Well, let's pray together briefly. Lord, in this time together, we thank you that we have before us the living and active word of God, which is sharper than any two-edged sword. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, including this passage, and is profitable for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness, for instruction, that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. Equip us now through your word. Speak to us now from your word. Change us by your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how should we respond when we don't know where we're going? The year is 1987, and I'm on a trip with my family to Virginia Beach, Virginia, from my hometown of Louisville, Kentucky. I'm seven years old, occupying the coveted middle hump in the back seat between my younger brother and my older stepbrother. For all I know, Virginia Beach is a drive down the street. However, an hour in, I remember thinking, are we ever going to get there? Will I ever eat again? Do they know what they are doing? What I failed to realize was that the trip would take several hours with only a Beach Boys greatest hit cassette to pass the time. Now, kids, I want to say something to you here because we're on the cusp of summer and many of your families are probably planning vacations and some of those vacations will require a little bit of a drive, so I want to set you up for success here. Since I'm knocking on the door of 40, I feel like I'm closing in on my things were so much harder when I was a kid phase. You know, it snowed inside the car, uphill both ways. So I'll take the opportunity to let you know what we had when we had to ride on those trips. Nothing. I take that back. We had our imagination. We had no iPhones, no iPads, no movies. We just talked to each other until we were so frustrated we couldn't eat anymore. Made up alphabet games and listened to the occasional Beach Boys Greatest Hits cassette. Oh, and I almost forgot. You know what else we also got to do? We got to look out the window. That was sweet. I just want to tell you all that so to let you all know that you can make it this summer. You can make it. It's one of the greatest lessons we can learn as children. Your parents and my parents know things we don't know, see things we don't see, and have plans that we're not aware of. If we as earthly parents generally have our kids' best interests at heart and generally have some clue about what we're doing, how much more does our Heavenly Father? Though we don't know what He knows and don't see what He sees and though He has plans and purposes that we know nothing about. But if we're honest, brothers and sisters, we don't actually maintain that perspective all the time. We look at the insurmountability of our circumstances. We look at our lack of physical, emotional, financial, and relational resources, and we fail. We fail to trust in our God, who knows exactly what he's doing. We concluded last week's sermon on a triumphant note. Finally, after 400 years of suffering, God had delivered his people from Egypt. 
after executing a series of judgments on Pharaoh in Egypt, concluding with the death of the firstborn and the observance of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Israel has been joyfully evicted from Egypt. They are no longer welcome. Praise the Lord. However, as they make their journey, it's clear that things aren't going as Israel envisioned. They appear to be wandering in their journey on the long and winding road. Your Beatles reference for the week. As they make their journey, Pharaoh is in hot pursuit, and their backs are against the wall. Israel was fearful, and they had reason to be. There are times when you and I seem hemmed in by circumstances and don't know which way to turn. If that's you here this morning, God has a word for you. And if that's not you here this morning, it will be you, and God has a word for you. What do we do when we're hemmed in by circumstances and don't know which way to turn? Here's what you do. You trust the steady God on a stressful journey. You trust the steady God on a stressful journey. That's my summary, but I want to give you three aspects of what that trust looks like. First of all, you have to trust that God's providence is greater than your perspective. We have to trust that God's providence is greater than our perspective. Everybody agree that God knows some things we don't know? But we don't act like it sometimes, do we? But it's true, right? He knows all things. We know some things, very few things. Israel found themselves in that condition. Look at chapter 13 and verses 17 and 18. We read at the beginning of chapter 13, verse 17, the following when, it, when Pharaoh let the people of Israel go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. That was the short route to Canaan. Go through the land of the Philistines, but God didn't lead them on the short route. Look at verse 18. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the sea, taking them on the long and winding road. And then verse 20 and they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. This is not the way home. This is a massive detour. You see, when Pharaoh let them go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines. There was a big highway called the Via Maris, or the way of the sea. And if you were going out of Egypt you would take this route all along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. You could walk from Egypt to Canaan in about two weeks. But here is, what, here is, here is where we see God's mercy. Though the most direct route was to take the Via Maris, God said that if they went that way, they would meet the Philistines, the coastal people. They weren't ready for that. Now, the text does say that they were equipped for battle, right? But did you notice in verse 17, it says God, God's assessment of that equip, equipped for battle was the people will change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So evidently, they are equipped in a certain sense. They can probably line up in some battle formations, and do, but they are by no means ready to fight. That's clear. 
And that was God's mercy to them to lead them on a confusing path. Even though at the time, they didn't know that. Some of them may have thought, all right, we're leaving Egypt. Going to Canaan. Wait, why are we heading back south? We're up here in the Delta. Now we're heading down south to the Red Sea. Why don't we just follow the Via Maris? That's the quick route. We all know the quick route. Take the quick route. And then Moses says, we're not going that way. You're not going to go up because that's where the Philistines are. But but that's the shortest way. I know. But God sees some things we don't. And this is an expression of God's care and God's mercy. Do you see that at the end of verse 17? The reason God did not lead them that way is because he knew that they would be tempted to go back to Egypt. The Philistine army stood in the way and God did not want to subject the fledgling and untested Israelite army to war against the mighty Philistines lest they lose heart and head back to Egypt. Brothers and sisters, we learn something about our God here. God accommodates himself to our weaknesses. He accommodates himself to our weaknesses. We see this again in chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and camp in front of Pi-Haharoth between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. Now this would have made no sense, again, to the Israelites at all. The route that they were on must have seemed crazy. They went to Migdal, which means tower, probably a fortified Egyptian city, and then they went by way of Pi-Haharoth, which means an opening in the canal. Maybe it was somewhere up in the Nile Delta region. Then they went to Beelzephon, which means Baal of the north. So here they are on the way to Egypt, or way out of Egypt, staying really close to Egypt. And then God tells them, I want you to turn around and camp between the desert and the sea. You don't have to be an expert in military strategy or ancient history to understand that that looks like a really bad idea. You have a people who have been oppressed, and then you have people who have been oppressing them coming after them, and these oppressed people are fleeing from them. They're in the most powerful superpower on the earth at the time. They are Egypt has a massive army. The last place you go in fleeing that power is between a rock and a hard place. And that's exactly where God puts them. God says, that's where I want you to go. You have the sea over there. You have the desert over there. Camp there. If you follow the details of their march, we find that the Israelites moved more or less toward the east down toward the Sinai Peninsula, but then at the direction of God, they moved west into an area that was basically a cul-de-sac. They had sand on one side, mountains around them, and the Red Sea in front of them. They couldn't go back because that would mean returning to Egypt. And while there should be no doubt that God was with the Israelites, the path that he chose for them was nonetheless fraught with danger. God led them straight to the impassable Red Sea, 
with a desert at their backs and told them to camp, set up shop, and stay. Beloved, let's remember that God's route is not, never has been, and never will be the easy route. Ever. Rarely does God take us on the path that we thought would be best. Rarely does he take us on the shortest route. Rarely does he set us on life's journey to the most obvious path. God turns them around and deliberately sends them into harm's way. He redirects them into an ambush. What was he doing? Why is he doing this? Well, we're told in chapter 14, verses 3 and 4, why God's doing this. Look there. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. God wants Pharaoh to think that he doesn't know what he's doing and that Israel doesn't know what they're doing. He wants them to look like they're lost. The reason is verse 4. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, and they did so. Are you okay with God inconveniencing you for the purposes of his glory? That's the question. Are you okay with life getting hard if God gets praised? He's doing this to Israel for the sake of his name. And we too, brothers and sisters, must do the same. Whatever, God, will bring you glory, will bring you praise. Though he slay me, I will hope in him, Job said. But notice what God's doing. He's not just getting glory. He is doing that, but he's doing it in a certain way. He's doing it by baiting a trap. He's baiting Pharaoh. Israel's the bait. The camp up against the Red Sea is the trap. And the mouse is Pharaoh and his army. God had a plan. He says, I'm going to send you there. You're going to look like easy pickings. Pharaoh's going to hear this and think they're lost. They're hemmed in by the wilderness and the sea. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know where, our go- where they're going. Here's our chance. Let's act. And Pharaoh's army is going to end up drowning in the bottom of the sea. The Lord chose deliberately to reverse the journey of the Israelites in order that he might gain a further victory over Pharaoh, thus displaying his glory. And I said this a few minutes ago, but let me say it again in a slightly different way. Note this, brothers and sisters. God is more concerned to lead you to a place where you see him work than he is to leading you to a place where you understand his work. God is more concerned to lead you to a place where you see him work than than leading you to a place where you understand his work. This is exactly what God did when he sent his son to die on a cross. Phil Riken comments, comparing this scene to Satan and his assault on Jesus at the cross and how the cross was God's bait to defeat Satan. To Satan, it must have seemed like Jesus had no idea what he was doing. He was God the Son, yet he allowed himself to be handed over to sinful men who stepped him, st- stepped, st- stepped him, beat him, and crucified him. 
on the cross. He was so vulnerable that Satan thought he had the strategic advantage and he pressed it to the death. But of course, this was his fatal mistake because the whole thing was a rue. The cross was not a defeat for Jesus, but a victory. That's what we see here, is that God is baiting Pharaoh's army just like he baited Satan. Go ahead, kill my son, and see if by it I don't make atonement for sin and gain victory over sin, death, and you, and win salvation for my people. And then we see that Pharaoh is absolutely tenacious. In chapter 14, verses 5 through 9, Pharaoh commands the armies to take action. He says in verse 6, So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots. That's massive. And all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. Verse 9, The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army overtook them. You see Pharaoh's mounting a full-on assault. He's not sparing any men, any supplies, any resources. Comparing here again Pharaoh to Satan, we learn something. Brother, sister, Satan's not giving you up without a fight. He's not going to give you up without a fight. He tries to grab us before we get away. Think about it. If you're a newer Christian here and you thought that after you came to Christ things were going to get easier and you discovered things got harder, welcome to following Christ. You were no threat to Satan when you were following yourself. But as soon as you start to follow Christ, get ready. When you face crippling doubt and discouragement and want to quit, you get baptized on a Sunday and fired on a Monday? Satan is riding furiously after us, tempting us to not just give up, but give in and go back. We were once his valuable servants. And he would love to have you back in his slave labor force. But we have to remember this, brothers and sisters. Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. His days are numbered. He's a fierce lion looking for someone to devour. But his anger is fierce because his time is short. And he knows it. We have to remember God's perspective. God's providence is greater than our perspective. God knows more than we know. And that's part of what it means to trust him as a steady God on a stressful journey. A second aspect of trusting God on a stressful journey is to remember that God's faithfulness is greater than our fears. God's faithfulness is greater than our fears. Would you say that Israel is quite fearful here? They are indeed. Look at verse 10 of chapter 14. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. They should. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Verse 11, they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt 
that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we, would, we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would be, have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Verse 10 sounds really good. They see these armies and they feared. That's okay. Fear in and of itself is not a bad thing. How we respond to our fear and what we do with our fear is another thing. There's no sin in verse 10. There's lots of sin in verses 11 and 12. But just because they feared doesn't mean anything. They recognized a huge army is coming after us. Gulp. They feared. And notice they cried out to the Lord. But what did they do immediately after doing that? Complain. Complain to Moses. They turned to God in desperation, which was great. But instead of waiting for God to answer, because he didn't come through right away, well, somebody's got to do something about this. And they start complaining. This is something we learn about the nature of spiritual attacks. Oftentimes, when Satan attacks Christians or when Satan attacks a church, the people will cry out. But if God doesn't answer right away, they start feeling threatened and they start to blame their leaders and pine for the old days. When we are threatened, we would often rather return to a familiar bondage than walk with God into an unfamiliar but brighter future. We need to learn that. That's a reality. That's a reality for God's people today. We would rather return to a familiar bondage than trust God to walk into an unfamiliar, scary, but much brighter future. And this is as true for followers as it is for leaders. Moses wasn't too keen on following God into a brighter future either along the way. But brothers and sisters, what we have to learn about our God is that each of these new constraints that God is putting on his people is actually a path to their true and lasting freedom. But the training hurts. It hurts. Listen, what is actually freedom sometimes feels like bondage. All they could see was the Red Sea over there the Egyptian army coming after them, and the pillar in the sky, the pillar of cloud, not moving. It'd be one thing if the army was pursuing and the cloud went, whoop, but the cloud's staying there, and the army's coming. The cloud, God, what are you going to do? The cloud's not telling us to do anything. And so the Israelites did what God's people often do in stressful and scary situations. Complain. Complain. Hey, Moses. Hey, Moses. Yo. They, you know, they, uh, you know, they kind of specialize in graves in Egypt. They kind of build pyramids. We've been working on big graves for a long time. Do they not have enough of those? See, what, what happens is we get real snarky, too. Hey, do we not have enough of those? Did you need to bring us out in the desert to die? Because, you know, we've been working on graves for 400 years. If we were going to die, couldn't you just left us in our homes? I mean, did we need to do the Passover? Why couldn't we just die there? 
See, you did this. It's all your fault. Isn't this what we said to you before? Didn't we tell you to leave us alone and let us serve in Egypt? Didn't we say that? Beloved, we need to remember that God does not view our complaining as an insignificant thing. We live in a culture of complaint. The air we breathe is grump. God does not see it that way. God views it as rank rebellion. Psalm 106, verse 7. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. That's the way God views complaining, rebellion. Their complaining was a form of rebellion against God. The Israelites were released from bondage, but brothers and sisters, they are still in bondage to themselves, which is a far worse form of bondage than a pharaoh. They were objectively free, but subjectively in their heart, they were in bondage. The old slave masters wanted them back, and they were all too ready to oblige. You can take the people out of slavery. You can't take the slavery out of people very easily. Just because you take the people out of Egypt doesn't mean Egypt has been taken out of the people. Sometimes we are tempted to look back. But here's the problem. They didn't look back far enough. They were looking back, and that's what was causing their fears. But here's the problem. They didn't look back far enough. Where should they have been looking back further to? They have in their very own midst a testimony to God's unrelenting, amazing faithfulness. And what is that? The bones of Joseph. They're carrying his bones. Do you see that in chapter 13, verse 19? This is just an incidental detail they throw in there. It's not incidental. It's huge. It's hugely relevant. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Hold your finger there. Look back at Genesis 50. I know we've been here. It's been a few months when we were concluding our series through the life of Joseph. But we read in Genesis 50, verses 24 and 26, what Moses or Joseph told the people of Israel, first of all, his brothers, what to do with him. And Joseph said to his brothers, the last three verses of the book of Genesis, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22, it said that, Moses, or that Joseph did all of that by faith. By faith, Moses told, gave directions concerning his bones. You see what Joseph did? Joseph saw and he had experienced over his lifetime the amazing, unrelenting faithfulness of God. So that when he stood on the cusp of death, he looked and said, Hey, we're going to be here a long time. For, I mean, I don't know if he knew quite how long, but surely he knew it was going to be a while. And he said, when you get out, take my bones with you. That's 400 years. 
400 years after that, they're carrying his bones with them out of Egypt. God is faithful, brothers and sisters. God doesn't forget you. Even hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after the fact, those bones should have been a powerful reminder of God's never stopping, never giving up, never failing, always and forever love. His fidelity to his never forgotten covenant was right there with them. They had no reason to complain. God carried them. And you know what? We have an even greater sign. An empty tomb. We don't have bones to carry around because there aren't any. The resurrected God man's at the right hand of God. We have nothing to fear. Nothing. We have a far better symbol of God's faithfulness than these people ever had. I'll get back to that a little bit later. When the voice starts cracking, you know it's getting serious, right? You know what we have? We have the evidence, the forever evidence of the love of God for us, displayed in the cross of Jesus. Your hardest boss said it. He said, the best proof that he will never cease to love us lies in the fact that he never began. Think about that. You have been loved with an everlasting love. There's never been a time where God didn't love you. He never started loving you. So he'll never stop loving you because he never started. God's faithfulness is greater than our fears. Finally, point number three. When we're on a stressful journey home, a steady God calls us to trust his providence over our perspective, to trust his faithfulness over our fears. And number three, to trust his intervention over our initiative. Trust God's intervention because it's greater than our initiative. Look at chapter 13, verses 21 and 22. Here's God's intervention in part. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. God was present with them the whole time. It wasn't that God just sent his leader, Moses, and his word with him and then said, hey, check you on the other side. See you on the other side of the sea. See you when you get there. I'm going to take the Via Maris. You guys are going the long way. He didn't do that. He didn't do that. He stayed with them in the midst of their confusion. In the midst of their stress, he was there. The Lord went before them by day. He led them along the way. And by night, he gave them light through a pillar of fire that they might travel by day and by night. There was an ever-present reminder of God's guidance in the sky in the form of a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire. And I can imagine someone saying, man, that's nice. Wish I had that. I mean, they had it so much better then. I mean, they had a visible manifestation of the presence of God with them. I sure would have liked a cloud to tell me where to go and what to do. I'd like to be able to wake up in the morning, look up in the sky, say, where are we going today, Lord? And just follow the cloud wherever it goes. 
Can I get a cloud to hover over the guy I should marry? Just, just a little cloud over him. That way I'll know. Wouldn't it be nice to have a cloud remain over the house I was supposed to buy? Or have a cloud remain over the place I was supposed to work? Beloved, we have something way better than that. You don't have a cloud above you. You have a spirit in you. The Holy Spirit of God indwells God's people. We have Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. I don't want no cloud in the sky. I want the third person of the Trinity in my life. I'll take that. We have it so much better in the new covenant. We have Christ in us, not just in a cloud, not just in a tabernacle, not just in a temple. You're the temple. You're the one in whom the Spirit of God dwells. As we make our journey through this life, we're not left as orphans. John 14, 18, you will not be left as orphans. I will come to you. We not only have God among us, we have God in us. So no, you don't have a cloud. You don't need one. You have the Spirit himself sent to guide you into all truth and lead you in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And notice, that's God's first form of intervention, but notice a second way that God intervenes in chapter 14. We're going to get to the great climax of this story next week, Lord willing. But look at verse 13 of chapter 14. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Now clearly, there's a time where God tells us to move, right? That's why the pillar of cloud is in the sky. And when it moves, they move. There is certainly a time where God says, move. And there's also a time where God says, do nothing. Don't do a thing. Don't move. Trust me, don't move. And you know what? That is one of the hardest things to do, is to do nothing. To do nothing. To simply stand, be still, wait for God. I mean, I'm so impatient. I'd, be, I'd rather be moving in the wrong direction than standing still. Anyone who's ridden with me and my wife and my family will verify this. If you've driven with me, you know I've gone on some very, very long shortcuts. <laughs> Leaving a parking lot or getting in a big traffic jam. I mean, there's got to be a way around this. These hundred cars in front of me, they don't know anything. <laughs> Just being still, waiting. And clearly, brothers and sisters, this doesn't mean that we abdicate responsibility and do nothing. Waiting and being still and trusting God is very active. It's not passive in the least. It's warfare to the end. But what it does mean is that you take responsibility for what's your responsibility and you let God take responsibility for what his, is his responsibility. Our problem is that we often take responsibility for what's not our responsibility. You're responsible for being a good parent. You're not responsible for the choices of your children. You must leave that to God and be still. Granted, 
you're a little bit more responsible when they're younger. I'm talking mostly when they're grown and older. You're responsible for being a good employee. You're not responsible for the actions of your boss. You must leave that to God and be still. You're responsible to speak the gospel to others. You're not responsible for their salvation. You must leave that to God and be still. You're responsible for your sin, and here's the good news, you're not responsible for your forgiveness. You leave that to God and you be still too. When we try to take control of our world or our eternal future, we're in effect saying, God is not doing a good enough job, I need to step in. That, my friends, is the height of arrogance and pride. To think that you can do a better job of running the universe than God can. I humbly submit that you nor I are qualified for such a task. We need to step down off the throne and let God be God. If we don't, the result will be stress over busyness, unwise decision, because, as you might have figured out, we're not very good at doing God's job for him. Spurgeon says it so well. He says, I dare say you will think it a very easy thing to stand still, but it is one of the postures which a Christian soldier learns not without years of teaching. I find that marching and quick marching are much easier to God's warriors than standing still. It is perhaps the first thing we learn in the drill of human armies, but it is one of the most difficult to learn under the captain of our salvation. To stand at ease in the midst of tribulation shows a veteran spirit long experience, and much grace. God says, here's what I want you to do, Israel. To demonstrate your complete reliance on me, I want you to do something very unnatural and difficult. Do nothing. And I'm sure there were some there who were feeling like, this is a test. He doesn't really want us just to stand there. I mean, somebody Google it. Google it. What are we supposed to do? We can't get Wi-Fi in the desert. But God tells them, nope, I'm not sending you a false signal. This is not a test. This is real. Don't do anything. Don't be afraid. Stand your ground. Be quiet. I'm going to do something. God often awakens us to our need of him by sending us problems we can't fix. And this is one of those problems for the people of Israel. They ain't fixing this one. (laughs) There's no way they're getting out of Pharaoh's army coming with their backs against the wall. He ties our lives up in knots and we have that we have no hope of untying knots that only he can untie. I mean, think about this behind them. They have a known enemy filled with more wrath than ever advancing toward them. Ahead of them, they have an impassable sea. They're trapped. They feel trapped. And you know why they feel trapped? Because they're trapped. That's why they feel trapped. They are trapped. So often the lesson that God would have us learn is what we can't do, he is more than able to do so. And when he does, you know what happens to us? We get humbled We rejoice, we learn, we trust. Brothers and sisters, so often we pray that we would see God work. Don't we want to see that? We want to see God work. How often do we pray? God, do things that are only explainable 
by what you can do. It's a good prayer to pray. But are you willing to have him put you in a difficult place where only he can deliver you? That's the trade-off. You want, you want to see God do the only work that he, only he can do? We got to be put in a place where we got nothing. We got nothing. That's the harder prayer to pray. I love it when God uses his power to ease my pain and suffering. I want him to remove discomfort. But we must trust that he often will use his power to increase our discomfort so that when he comes through, we get the joy and he gets the glory. And that we learn to trust him. Now in conclusion, it's quite fitting that we leave the Israelites here. We're going to come next week, Lord willing, to God's intervention in its fullest sense. But let's just stop here for this Sunday. Because frankly, brothers and sisters, this is where we're living most of the time. We have a great victory on the horizon, but we're stuck in the messy middle. Seeing the army in front of us and the sea behind us and wondering, God, what in the world are you doing? What's going to happen? Listen, brothers and sisters, God has taken you this far. He's not going to let you go. In fact, when Moses said, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, here's the truth. You already have. You already have. Did your eyes not see his salvation? Remember Simeon in Luke chapter 2? He came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. The ultimate salvation from the Lord is not in the crossing of the Red Sea. It's in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has done everything that we need to be saved. Christianity is not good advice of what we can do to become better people. Christianity is good news about what God has done in Christ to save the worst of people. We contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. All we do is stand there and believe. That's the way God has always saved his people. That's why we're sitting here saved today. Not because we were great people, not because we checked all the moral boxes, not because we've been flawless Christians, but because we've been trapped by our sin, by Satan, by death, by judgment, by wrath justly deserved. And God has stand, said, stand still, watch my salvation. And he brought it to pass in the life, birth, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That's it. But listen, you're going to see his salvation again in a much fuller sense. Not in the parting of the Red Sea, but in the parting of the eastern sky. When Christ returns to deliver us from all bondage to sin and death, rescuing us out of this barren wilderness where we feel like we're wandering aimlessly to take us home to the promised land. Meanwhile, as we walk the oftentimes confusing path of this life, let's remember these things. God is guiding us. 
God is with us. God is fighting for us. Our enemies, though fierce, are no match for him. Let's trust his providence, not our perspective. Let's fixate on his faithfulness, not on our fears. Let's await his intervention, not our initiative. And we can do all this in and through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our eyes have seen his salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word this morning to us, which gives us so much comfort in the face of stress and confusion in our lives. As our pastor Thad reminded us earlier, the often bewildering experiences we have in this life are no match for your providence, for they are under it. They're no match for your faithfulness, for they are proven by it. And they're no match for your intervention, because you have saved us from the deepest pit imaginable, the pit of our own sin, the pit of our just, justly deserved judgment and death. You have saved us, and you will continue to save us because you are a God who is faithful to your covenant, faithful to your people. Help us to trust your providence. Help us to rest in your faithfulness. Help us to rejoice in your intervention. We ask all this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's